Welcome to the Closing Time Podcast for the week of May 26th, 2019. I am Joe McGuire. She is Abby Bro. A lot going on in the real estate world right now. And unfortunately, a, a lot of it is uh, kind of like from the police blotter section of the news. It's it's not it's not a lot of good stuff right, right now, Abby. And I, and I like that. Growing up, did you have the police blotter in your town news? Of course I did. It was one of my, <laughs> that and the comics and the sports were my favorite sections. Literally the only thing that I read. And then every time a member of our family was in it, we would cut it out and put it on a magnet and put it on the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> It's great. Well, it's nice to see people you know in the newspaper, isn't it? They're still up there. They're all like yellowed out. <laughs> so uh, we've been talking about this antitrust lawsuit. It's pretty big. Now, the big residential brokerage franchisers and holding companies have joined NAR uh, in a motion to dismiss this lawsuit that seeks to overturn the status quo of buyer's agent commissions. Now, they filed a motion to dismiss the class action lawsuit filed by home seller Christopher Morrell. Uh, seeking to upend the traditional uh, commission structure in the real estate industry. That guy's going to have a hard time finding a real estate agent in the future. 100%. Yeah. Uh, Reology, Keller Williams, Home Services of America, and REMAX, along with National Association of Realtors, were named as co-defendants in that lawsuit. Now recently announced that it asked the judge to dismiss the lawsuit, which accused the defendants of conspiring to determine buyer's agent's compensation, which violates the Sherman Antitrust Act. The premise of the plaintiff's complaint reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of the rules of defendant, the National Association of Realtors, and the roles of defendants. The memorandum accompanying the motion states, as a result, the complainant fails to state a claim against any of the defendants for a violation of the antitrust laws. The motion to dismiss bluntly states the buyer broker commission rule upon which the lawsuit was filed just doesn't exist. Hmm. Because really, what is a buyer broker? What really, what is it? How easily are those changed and negotiated just right in the contract? Sometimes in the middle of a transaction or towards the end of a transaction. In the case of short sales where you might right. change the commission. I mean, it happens. So it's never really set in stone what it is. Well, it actually, I mean, you can have it say that your compensation will be 2.5%. And in this, in any situation where it's not 2.5%, you're asking your buyer to negotiate um, that with the seller. Um, but it doesn't say successfully negotiate that. And, you know, I mean, yes, it also could say that um, if they don't agree to pay the 2.5%, then the buyer is liable for that cost. Did I tell you on my very first transaction, it was a 2.5% co-bro, mm -hmm. and I wrote into the contract that I'm a 3% guy. Oh, really? And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had taken a training through my company, and the lady was like, you could do that, and I did it. And so did you get 3%? No, the other agent was experienced, and she basically berated me and yeah. told me that that wasn't going to happen. She's like, you want to ask your client for like... The $900? Yeah, no. And I was like, no. She's yeah. like, then you're not getting it. I'm taking it out. And I was like, okay. It just makes you look stupid. But that's what happens when you're new in the business. And right. No, but I, you know, I mean, right, you, you could tell, like, that's not a good idea. No. I mean, it just, it, it, fundamentally not, not yeah. a good idea. No, I agree. It was interesting, though. I did have an open house um, a few months ago, and this is the first time I actually got wind of this. Um, it was a buyer. Um from I think Philadelphia and they were like 
I was like, oh, you know, are you, are you working with an agent to purchase the home? And she's like, no, we're not going to work with an agent. And I was like, oh, can you tell me a little bit about why? And they said that they sold their house in Philly and um, they did not offer um, a buyer agent commission. So because of that, or maybe it was lower, it wasn't too poor. It was like one person okay. because of that. They didn't get a lot of showings. So they felt that buyer's agents are slimy people. And th- so that was kind of like the first like glimpse into what was like going on right now. You know, it, it's it's weird because I mean, I, I think I've been a realtor since 2005. I, I think I've seen a person or two talk about maybe that they wouldn't show under 2%. I've never heard of I've it. I've seen anybody follow up on that or, yeah. or do it. And. I'll tell you, I mean, it's literally the last thing I look at. Absolutely. I, I just, you know, when I get to there, I just hope it says that it's, <laughs> that there is one. Every once in a while you see that one dollar and you're like, that's yeah. weird. <laughs> I feel like it's like, oh, great. Yeah. Dollar. We'll see how this plays out. Right. Uh, meanwhile, the Department of Justice is demanding CoreLogic turn over documents and answer questions. Interesting. The first major area is whether MLS members can search for properties based on the amount or the type of cooperating commission that's offered. And we can't. We cannot do that. That is not a way that we can search. Right. Right. Now, the DOG is very interested in, in whether that can happen. Mm-hmm. or And if not, why not? Mm, why not? The DOJ wants every email or letter between CoreLogic and its customer MLS that pertain to how much a member can and cannot search by commission amount or type. So it seems like the feds are convinced that we're all doing this. Right. That we're just, we're skipping on, you know, and I, again, look, I mean, if you're going to list at 1%, it's probably not the greatest house in the world. Or maybe it is. I mean, I don't know what their uh, reasoning for it w- would be. I mean, think about houses you see that are 2% or yeah. two and a half. Right. Generally, they're they're kind of like mid range priced. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably it's got to do with the seller owing on the mortgage, and, right? And, and they can't the re- afford the commission. Then that literally, generally, is, is what it comes down to. Or it's a newer agent who just doesn't want to ask for the full percent. Mm-hmm. Now, since Moral vs. NAR is at the forefront of our minds, th- this should be ringing bells for everybody. Uh, the second major area that that the DOJ is interested in is is more sweeping. It's uh, the second area of document production basically covers any policy guideline, rule, practice, or contract term that restricts the company's usage, distribution, sale, or licensing of any MLS data. The DOJ wants CoreLogic to supply any documents that outline any possible or actual reason, rationale, or basis for such a policy, rule, whatever. Uh, if you're a federal regulator, requiring that the MLS disclose sold pendings, expired, withdrawn, suspended, and terminated listings, and the cooperating commission types and amounts to the public via brokers and agents, as well as via portals and non-participant companies who may or may not have uh, licenses that that can get to that data. Uh, This would be simple to do. It would be less likely to be overturned in court, and it might achieve the actual goal the DOJ has in mind, which is greater competition and lower commissions. <sighs> it's all very complicated. And here's the thing. I mean, it, it, this is going to be a major court battle and it's going to drag on for years. Yeah. So, you know, and we can, it'll give us something to talk about for the <laughs> next like 500 episodes. Yeah. Because th- these things tend to drag on. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm glad NARS taking this thing head on. I I suppose there's probably people that are doing it, but I think like with any system, there's always going to be people that are taking advantage. Right. I don't know that this is major. Again, I think if you're a buyer or a seller for that matter, but more a buyer and you don't feel like the agent is showing you the right properties. Right. You got to say something. And you got to know that they're not doing it. And they can, I mean, people use Zillow and Realtor.com. They can see, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a discrepancy in the accuracy of the information. But you can see if a house is listed for sale and if it's not presented to you by your agent, you got to question why, I guess, or ask to see it if you want to see it, you know? I mean, in, in that, if that agent says no and has some sort of reasoning that's fishy, find somebody else. I had a friend call me yesterday mm-hmm. and asked me a question about, and I hate this. It's not my place, and you should have had me be a realtor, uh, but asked me a question about something he didn't feel his realtor was providing. Or being on the level with him about something. Um, and I don't get into that stuff. Okay, I mean, good. I, yeah. no, I certainly wouldn't speak on it. But no. basically, he had submitted an offer. And it wasn't even that low. But she suggested he went full price. He said, why? And she said, because the seller is collecting offers right now. Mm-hmm. We want yours to be the best one. Okay. And I'm, I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. Um, if the listing agents like we're just sitting back, I mean, it's not like this house was bank owned or anything. This is not a seller to it and a listing agent. Right. Um, that's, that's not, I mean, put a time limit on how quick acceptance should be done. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to compete with everybody else. Then reject my offer. Mm. I don't like that. Yeah. But I told him that he should call her and, and he should ask her some questions yeah there's different uh, ways of negotiating that. but if you have um you know logic behind it then prove that there's logic and have that conversation with your with your Tell buyer me, it's so important to be educated and if your agent's not educating you along the way ask mm. ask ask dumb questions <laughs> you know what i mean no like, i to- i totally agree because you do you you you're like this is a stupid question i and i don't want to ask it no ask it mm-hmm. if you ask it your your agent will appreciate it trust me because we want you to know what's going on oh yeah we we want you to be in the know and this is it really is such a a more complicated process at this point that if you're not asking questions you're, you're doing yourself a disservice uh, more bad news. <laughs> Some week there's going to be all awesome stuff. I can't wait. Redfin Direct, the pilot program that allows consumers in limited markets to make direct offers on homes listed by real estate brokerage. Redfin Online, without being represented by a buyer's agent, is violating a regulation regarding agency disclosure. That is according to the Massachusetts state government agencies that oversees real estate licensees. We just talked about this. On Mother's Day, right? Yeah. We had just talked about this. No, two weeks later. Womp womp. Nope, sorry. (laughs) A staff member at the Massachusetts Board of Registration of Real Estate Brokers and Salesperson reports that the board reviewed the terms and conditions found on the Redfin Direct website and determined Redfin's not meeting its requirements by providing the mandatory agency disclosure form to the buyer disclosing that they're the seller's agent and have no fiduciary 
duty to the buyer. Hmm. Which is what we've been. We were talking about this. This, yeah. this sort of is what the problem is. As, as an unrepresented buyer, no one's got your back. The rule also says the broker or salesperson providing the disclosure and their prospective buyer or seller should sign and date the disclosure. To submit an offer on a property through Redfred, buyers must complete a 55 question online form on the brokerage's website. They wear you down. With 55 I mean, questions. Really? That is grueling. <laughs> uh, now, as buyers fill out the form, Red, Redfin provides market information that may impact how buyers choose to tailor their terms, such as pointing out 71% of recent Boston area Redfin client offers included an, agent, uh, an inspection contingency. Do they have, like, how do they back this claim up? I think that's the problem. That's the problem. Yeah. Okay, oh, got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Okay, keep going, keep uh, going. Matter of fact, the very last <laughs> screen before the buyer clicks send my offer term yeah. discloses that Redfin represents the seller in this transaction. The information in the form does not constitute legal advice, tax advice, or the creation of a real estate agency relationship with Redfin. Uh, you're, I mean, you're sort of just taking advantage of a person. And again, here's the thing. It's so sad. You could sort of lay these terms out. And if they're not presented in a way that they're going to fully comprehend, yeah. then you're being deceptive. And I, I'm not saying Redfin's being purposely deceptive, but on the surface, it's, it's just sort of a deceptive thing because yeah. you think you would always think if you're working with a person. Mm-hmm. who's representing a company selling a property, you'd feel like, oh, this person must be working with me too. Right. It would be easy to think that. It would definitely be easy. Even if they were that I'm being represented said, I'm by not them. helping you, you yeah. would still think that by virtue of they're helping you through the process. Because I'm using their website. Right. Yeah. It seems like there's a relationship. The hat there. would be a red flag though. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't do the hat. That's yeah. not a great idea. ClosingTimePodcast.com is our website. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Now, uh, Facebook, speaking of, speaking of, Mark Zuckerberg's intention is to move the social network away from the town square concept and to build the digital equivalent of the living room, mm-hmm. which will make your circle smaller and more private. And this could potentially be difficult uh, for real estate professionals. Now, it remains to be seen how the changes will affect advertisers' reach to new audiences. I have already found in trying to post just the link to this podcast, yeah, because it's about real estate, if I put in some of the same buzzwords that I would put on a different podcast, like my Yankees podcast, I would do baseball, yeah. Yankees. If you start to put real estate, buyers, you get flagged yeah. immediately. Uh, for fair housing. Now, the living room idea, which exposes users to less content generated from outside of their inner circle, is more of an evolution of Facebook's algorithm than a drastic new approach. Here's some of the changes. Content from Facebook groups users belong to now takes precedence in your news feed, which I've noticed because I'm in a whole bunch of New York Yankees groups. Oh, yeah. And that's all I see all day, and it's driving me nuts. All I see are, yeah, the Connecticut Realtor groups. Yep. Our the own groups you're in is group. all. It's <laughs> all I see. Yes. There are different community groups that I'm in, like Moms of Connecticut, Mom Bosses. Yeah. Her house, all of it. Yeah. So this is going to make it harder for real estate professionals who market their business on social media to reach new and 
new possible clients. So here's the thing. I don't have a business page on Facebook. I've more or less abandoned Facebook. Um, I'm mainly on Instagram, which I know is Facebook, but, um, (laughs) but so I, and I never had a business page on Facebook. Um, I've always, uh, I don't, um, promote or pay for advertising for my own business on Facebook. I always just kind of talk to my friends, like they're my friends and tell them what I'm doing in my life and keep them aware of what I am and how I can offer them my services. So I don't know if I'm being affected by this from what I'm doing. I don't know. Do oh, you see? I, I, I definitely do. And okay. I, I totally get it. I mean, literally, my, my I know what my feed looks like. I could imagine what people I want to know. Yeah. I'm a realtor. I, I'm wondering what they're What seeing. they would say. Yeah, that's So, yeah, this is, uh, this is not good. Critics argue that Facebook's latest changes help it collect more personal data and drive marketing and advertising, which, mm. big shocker, that's how Facebook makes money. Right, I know. So, <laughs> of course, that's what they do. It's not good for you, mm-hmm. but it is definitely good for the Zuck. Right. He definitely, I don't know if you saw, but he just bought two houses on a, 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 a lake in Michigan. Mm. He bought the one house, and then he decided to buy the one next to it just so that nobody could be near him. Smart. Yeah. I wonder what, whose age it was. Uh, whoever it is is definitely Could on you the imagine right, right now. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about AI, and I know you love it, and I keep talking about the Terminator. Yeah. Uh, from chatbots that talk to your clients <laughs> on your behalf to voice technology that can guide you through your workday, artificial intelligence is changing the way realtor, uh, real estate professionals work, and mostly for the better. Uh, speakers at the Emerging Business Issues and Technology Forum uh, briefed attendees on how AI is evolving to help automate real estate professionals' tasks and why it's so important to stay ahead of the trends. Jeff Turner, who is the entrepreneur in residence with Second Century Ventures, which is the strategic arm, uh, the investment arm of the National Station of Realtors, said this, and it's it's great. He said, we can automate anything. Mm-hmm. But we have to be prepared prepared for what consequences are to that and make sure that automation doesn't do more damage than good. Yeah. As AI becomes more stream, are your relationship with clients at risk? The forum speakers all basically said, collectively, technology will never replace the real estate professional's importance. Or will it? It won't because, and so here's the thing, you know. I teach at a broadcasting school. One of the things I tell my students is, look, you know, robots can do a lot of stuff. They can build cars. They can't paint pictures. They can't make audio recordings or tell stories or create podcasts. They can't do that. The The AI is not, I mean, you, you can ask Siri to tell you a joke, right? Yeah. Is it a good one? <laughs> Has Siri yeah. ever told you a good, good one? No, I guess not. Right. I mean, you're always so, you're always at the end. You're going to need a human eye mm-hmm. to oversee this process. Yeah. The AI can help. It could make your job easier. It could make your life better. It might mean you get less money to do what you're doing, to pay the AI in your life. But you're always going to need that person to be there. Right. I mean, the, the, the whole thing is certainly shifting. Where, so are I mean, you thinking again, that it will allow us to do more transactions? So like yes. AI can drive me to my appointments while I, you know, make phone calls and try and get more leads. How great would that be? That would be great. People Look, are doing it now. Imagine your car's driving you. You're on your laptop pulling up. Well, that's what Teslas do. You just install a computer in your Tesla, have them drive you all around the town 
while you're making phone calls. I think that's great. How much is a Tesla? They're not that bad. Really? I don't know. Tom has one. No, Tom. Someone in Thomas' family has one. Okay. An agent with us. <laughs> just saying. Good yeah. Tom. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, I found some really great information. Uh, the National Association of Realtors Home Buyers and Sellers Survey. And uh, basically, this is the the uh, across the nation. The average typical home buyer, 46 years old, $92,000 in income. Did you know that $100,000 is the new broke? Is that right? I, I read that somewhere. Anyway. I, I could see that. <laughs> so here's a look at some of the Connecticut metros and sort of what the typical buyer would, would be like. Mm-hmm. In the Hartford, West Hartford, East Hartford metro area, your typical buyer is 40 years old, 51% are married, 51% of a bachelor's degree or higher, average income is $103,197, and 87.2% of recent buyers financed their home purchase. Hmm. That number is going to be interesting as we go down the list. Okay. In New Haven, Milford, in that metro area, 41 years old, 49% married, a $96,115 income. 50% of the people in the New Haven, Milford uh, metro area have bachelors or higher. 77.9% of recent buyers financed their home purchase. Huh. In the Bridgeport, Stanford, Norwalk metro, the average buyer is 39. 62% are married. The average income is $114,100. 62% a bachelor's or higher. 68.3% financed their recent home purchase. In the Norwich, New London metro, average buyer, 39, only 41.9% married. An $84,237 average income, 57% a bachelor's or higher, and 75.1% financed their home purchases. Interesting. Yeah, I I mean, I thought so, too. I mean, you sort of look, you know, certain areas, you're more likely to see people that are married down in the Norwich, New London area. You're pretty likely to have a single person that you're selling to. It seemed about 40 years old as the average buyer in Connecticut. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder um, what percentage are male and female. They didn't have that information. Um, they did not have that information. I have never at least that I saw. I've only sold so um I've either sold to couples or to single females. I've never sold to a single man. I have never sold to a single man either. So interesting. I did sell to a single woman and uh no one single man my first uh well, he was about to get engaged, so I guess that didn't count. I have a buyer. He hasn't bought yet. Oh, I have two buyers that are single men. Really? This will be the year. I have two this buyers that are single women. Oh, Just wow. Set them up. Oh, that's interesting. I'm I actually... Joking. No, that's not a good idea. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. That's a terrible idea. Um, Do you know what a red door means? I do, actually. Do you really? Well... I because I did this research. Today. You did, yeah. <laughs> and thank you for giving it to us. It's so interesting. Uh, so, if like Abby, you've seen a red door, you might have wondered why and what exactly does it mean. Well, the history, origin, and meaning of a home having a red front door is varied. 
there is no one origin for the red exterior door. If you're thinking of painting the front door of your home red, consider some of the meanings to decide if red is the right color choice for your front door. Because your home's exterior is important, and how you paint your home reflects on you. Your neighbors certainly will notice your red door. That is for sure. Uh, Rhymed. You know what I mean? <laughs> that rhymed. Always, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm, go I'm ahead. pretty good like that. Uh, so, uh, Feng Shui? F no. Feng Shui? Feng Shui? Feng Shui. Am I saying it wrong? I think you said Feng Shui. Feng Shui. That's what, that's what we were going for with the, the design here in the studio. Oh, Did it's you know beautiful. That? It's yeah. gorgeous. Uh, it's a Chinese philosophy in which the arrangement and color of objects in a room relates to the flow of the energy. Hmm. The front door is known as the mouth of chai, where energy enters. Kind of neat. Yeah. You could always use that as your thing if people ask you why your door is red. Right. Uh, in old, early American tradition, red door means welcome. Uh, if if somebody was traveling horse and buggy and you had a red door, it meant literally, Abby, they could knock on your door and you let them spend the night. Yeah. Come have the shepherd's pie. We'll have some. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. You know, something like a fluffy pillow up. That's solid. Yeah. Is your door red? No, it's pink. It should which be is red. kind of red. It which is, is kind of red. It's a shade yeah. of red. Yeah. Uh, a red door provides protection. In, in biblical times, the Hebrew slaves were instructed to smear the blood of a lamb on mm. their front door to protect their firstborn from the angel of death. <laughs> No big deal. Nice. Uh, in old Catholicism, churches painted the doors of the church red to represent the blood of Christ. Uh, St. Mary's in Meriden, where I was an altar boy for many years. Mm -hmm. Giant red doors. Nice. And I never thought about that until literally right now. Oh, St. Peter's as well, where I was an acolyte in Were Cheshire. Really? Yep, I was. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know that about you. Yeah. I was really good at being an altar boy. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, good. Being up on the altar. I enjoyed it, too. It was yeah. fun. Felt important. <laughs> uh, a red door means mortgage-free. In Scotland, homeowners would paint their front door red to signify that they paid off their mortgage. That's my favorite reason. That is awesome. Hey, I'm debt-free. <laughs> How great is that? <laughs> yeah, right? If uh, I ever paint my door red, it's going to be because of that. the mortgage has officially been paid off. Yeah, I've already made up that decision in my mind. That's totally happening. It's all, it's all about the look. Right. You know? It's I like important. my pink door, though. We'll um, have to see. Pink door is pretty cool. My husband. It was my husband's idea. Yeah. Did you buy right into it? You were like, oh, yeah. Because yeah, I wanted to do like that really cool teal that's really popular now. Um, but Really? Yeah, I did. And he's yeah. like, no, pink. And I'm like, okay. All right, if you do it, fine. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I like uh, it. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, Business Insider reported in 2016 that J.P. Morgan Chase and Company had circulated an internal memo expanding business casual dress firm-wide. Mm. According to the memo, the change from business formal, suit jackets and ties, to a less buttoned-up appearance at the world's fifth largest bank reflected how the company is changing. The tech booms ushered in uh, a new, more relaxed era of professional appearance. It's now significantly more likely that you'll see hoodies and flip-flops in the office than to see suits and ties. With 40% of millennials having at least one tattoo, body art like ink and piercings are 
also becoming much more prevalent and visible at work. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a time where you had a tattoo boy. You wore long sleeves everywhere <laughs> all the time. Um, except for the guys I dated, they all rolled their sleeves up to oh, show. Right? Yeah. I actually, um, for a long time I worked at a startup in New Haven and, um, everyone hoodies, flip flops, jeans, but all the tech dudes, they all wore that fleece. Yeah. You know that, that like that vest fleece, I know exactly the Patagonia one. Yep. Yeah. Every single one of them. Anyway. So cool. <laughs> so according to the data, roughly half of us employees have an explicit dress code at their place of work. About 49% of respondents said their company has the explicit uh, dress code. Uh, this number includes workers who are required to wear a uniform to work. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of people, and, and, and for a reason, typically that means you're wearing a uniform. Right. About 19% said that while there's no explicit dress code at their place of work, there's a certain pressure to look or dress a certain way. Well, you want to look like your peers as well. Sure, yeah. You don't want to mm-hmm. be like the bum in the office. Nobody right. wants to be that guy. 32% of respondents said they can look however they want at work, you know, within reason. Yep. Which is good. I like that. Mm-hmm. How do you dress? I always wear pants. I wear slacks. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, you know, it's funny. When I turned 35, and I used to laugh at my dad because my dad always wore slacks. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, because I was always a jeans guy. I turned 35. And I bought some Dockers, mm-hmm. and I just haven't looked back on the on the on the khakis slash pants. I always wear pants. Yeah, it's important. Good, nice pair of shoes. I I used to own. We at appreciate that you always like wear pants. Ten pairs of sneakers. Now I have one pair. Really? Yes. It's because you're a dad. Yeah. Yeah. I have like five pairs are of they, shoes. Are they super white? Yes. <laughs> I'm actually wearing the sneakers they are? right now. They couldn't be any whiter. Yeah. Yeah. That's hilarious. It's sad. Is yeah. What, is what it is. I literally used to make fun of my dad for that. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Just something about being 35 and denim's no good anymore. <laughs> you want a nice pleat. <laughs> you know hilarious. what I mean? Yeah. Nice soft cotton. <laughs> so as since we are business owners, though, we can choose how we want to dress. Right. You know, for our clientele. And I one, always wonder, you know, um, will you get paid more if you wear a nice Prada suit? Or not. Interesting, because mm. the research dives into just that. Ooh. Now, whether your dress code is officially enforced or not, the more formal you dress for work, the more money you are likely to make. The survey showed that workers of companies that have a formal dress code have the highest median salary at $57,800. Workers of companies that have a business casual dress code, the second highest median salary at 53700 Workers who had a casual dress code had the third highest at 50300 Respondents who said they wore specific work uniforms reported the lowest median salary by far at $38,300. Hmm. So I, I think guess I w- dress for the job you want, right. not for the job you have. But to be honest, I think I'd give up that 3000 to wear whatever I want to work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, well, it was less than $3,000. I-, I would say for literally the last 15 years of my life, what mm-hmm. I wore to work, there was no real dress code. You know, be presentable pretty right. much was what it was. I think they put a memo out once and it was like no ripped jeans was the rule. Mm-hmm. Um. And not that anybody ever did that, but they felt the need to say it. And it was right around then when I 
I got into pants, into real <laughs> khaki pants. So but excited about your attire. Anytime I, like my first time meeting a client face-to-face, I always dress up. You suit up. I got to suit up. Yeah. And if they show up and they're dressed down, my next appearance will be... To match them, maybe? I, I mean, I won't dress down, down, but it might just be khakis and, and a button-down. So I don't know if it's because I'm a woman, but I, maybe we can have a little bit more fun with our attire. But I like to be something I like more like um, edgy, a little bit more current, something funky, uh, at least one piece of clothing that I have. Um, and then everything else kind of casual. I don't want to seem pretentious. I don't, um, you know, I don't feel like I need to um, present um how much money i'm making and material things towards my clients i feel like um my um how how i represent them in the um transaction speaks for itself um but yeah i mean i'll definitely wear jeans i'll i'll wear chuck taylors i'll wear you know just at least something cool and fun and trendy um but also i mean i know i've talked about it in the past but being a woman, I don't know if you feel this as a man, but I feel like I have to dress um, for any situation that I'm in because I do have in the back of my mind that if I'm wearing heels and I need to get away from somebody, that's not a good thing. Yeah. You know, so flats all the time, 100 percent and no flip flops. That's Smart. kind of, that's that's a rule. No flip flops. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have dress up or dress casual. That's, yeah. It's somewhere in between. But again, I. I want my clients to feel comfortable. Again, if they're going to show up in sweatshirts and jeans. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it might get even a little more cash because I, I want them to feel like we're we're hanging. We're together. Yeah. If we stopped and had lunch, it wouldn't look weird like a guy in a suit with people in jeans. and Yeah. And, and, you know what I mean? So I, I want us to look like we're together. We match. Yeah. And then you also match the houses you're looking at. You know, if you're looking at old Victorians in Hartford, you might dress a little different yes. than if you're looking at like, you know, mold filled places in Bridgeport, you know, Fair enough. <laughs> for investment purposes. Yo, that's 100% accurate. Yes. Yeah. Um, but also for listing appointments, though, that's different. I go I go suit. I, uh, Shoulder pads. I showed a bunch of houses <laughs> in Simsbury and yeah. Avon, and I suited up Yeah, for all of those showings. Did you? Did you I feel did. good? I did. I did you get paid powerful. more? <laughs> uh, no, that client ended up screwing me over. <laughs> she was really nice, though. Um, so hey, this is a, a story, and, and it's pretty – it's surprising that it's happening in a place like Connecticut. Uh, it was an article entitled Separated by Design, How Some of America's Richest Towns Fight Affordable Housing. In Southwest Connecticut, the gap between rich and poor is wider than literally anywhere else in the entire country. Local zoning boards and the state government block affordable housing in some of the wealthier towns, like Westport. Not to pick out any spe- specific town, but... But you did. But Westport, <laughs> if I'm going to which is just one example of a wealthy Connecticut suburb that surrounded itself with invisible walls to block affordable housing and, by extension, the people who need it. In a liberal state that's provided billions of taxpayer money to create more affordable housing, decisions at local zoning boards, the Connecticut capital, and state agencies have thwarted court rulings and laws intended to remedy housing segregation. As far back as that has been kept, 
Connecticut's low-income housing has been concentrated in poor cities and towns. It's an imbalance that has not budged at all over the last three decades. Mm -hmm. Many zoning boards rely on their finely tuned regulations to keep housing segregation firmly in place. They point to frail public infrastructure, clogged streets, a lack of sidewalks, and concerns of overcrowding that would damage what's often referred to as neighborhood character. It's... It's sad that this day and age that there's, and again, it's, it's almost like they're not doing it, but they're making it impossible to undo the damage. Mm -hmm. And that's the worst part of it. Right. You know, Connecticut's a, I really love Connecticut. Me too. I've lived out of Connecticut. I moved back to Connecticut. I'm a big fan of the state, Mm -hmm. but that that's not good. That's yeah. not cool. I I I'm really I was really sad to read that article. I'll, I'll tell you. Um, I was not sad to read about this. <laughs> <laughs> Redfin and Remax are breaking up. Aww. A statement from Redfin, the technology power real estate brokerage, Remax withdrew today from its corporate partnership with Redfin. Redfin has the utmost respect for Remax as a company, for its agents and leaders. Remax agents who already work as Redfin's partner agents will continue to be our partners. And Remax agents can continue to enroll in our partner program, but Redfin can now enroll partner agents from other brokerages to serve Redfin.com visitors in the U.S. and Canada. Now, an issue between Red Remax and Redfin has been Redfin Direct, mm-hmm. which is the, That's the new the service issue. Yeah. Uh, that they piloted in Boston. Remax was concerned that Redfin Direct would sort of undermine the standing of North American buyer's agents. Right. And I'll tell you, over the last couple of weeks, as this story's kind of been developing, they, they announced they got together, I thought, wow, I mean, that's, that's like, the heck with everybody else. I, I, I applaud Remax's efforts here. Yeah. Uh, and Redfin understands the concern. Uh, they employ thousands of licensed professionals and, they believe the vast majority of home buyers need professional advice and will happily pay for it. But they also have a duty to get as many offers as their customers' listings can get. Uh, and, and so that that's they think they're giving their clients the, the best value. They believe in their consumer choices. Uh, I, I get it. I'm kind of glad to see that partnership ending. Yeah. So Remax, um, it looks like they are more um, concerned with their agents, yes. and Redfin is more concerned with the customer. Yes. Yeah. And so that um, they can't see eye to eye. Yeah, I think when your business yeah. structure the bi- completely opposite is com- Yeah, it's hard to work together. Right. And it's probably best that they don't partner with a particular brokerage. That's probably not. That was a great super idea quick, either. Like yeah, two months, right? I that don't was know. Like or a am Britney I missing Spears it? marriage? I mean, it was. <laughs> it was in and it was out. It yeah, was... started in Vegas, ended in Vegas. Yeah, it's <laughs> one of those. Closingtimepodcast.com is our website. Make sure you check it out for all of our previous episodes and so much more, including if you are an agent and you're looking for real estate branding, home video tours, drone shots, and so much more that can all be provided for you at clovercrestmedia.com. You can also make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. I know Abby's all over the Instagram. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy it. 
you know? Uh, and one of the new Britneys in our office at New England Prestige Realty, yeah. I laughed because one of her first posts in our chat group was, are we on Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we are. It's when it's it's all about the Insta right now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I really enjoy it. Yeah, and I'm actually, um, you know, looking into possibly, you know, getting some help with my Instagram. So perhaps I can share with uh, with you guys in a, in a upcoming podcast a little oh, more information on that. Yeah, you and know, you could get somebody to come on and talk about it. Like and an, you could teach people and yeah, how to get more followers, but not just like those creepers, you know. Um, Nobody you, wants creepers. Yeah, you want quality people because you want to interact with your um, the people that you're that are following you, um, your audience in um, a genuine way. Yeah. So best tips and tricks for that. I'm such a big fan of your Instagram. Yeah. Mine's lame. Oh, thanks. Make sure you. Make sure I got to keep us. up on it. I get ideas and then I my day just happens. You know what I mean? Like you really have to stay on top of things. I had I got called twice this week from daycare to pick up my son who was ill. Oh, I mean, talk about like a monkey wrench in the day. I know, right? But again, that's I mean, tough. Being a realtor, you know, you got moves. You can make moves. Make moves. That's what it's all about. Yeah, being flexible. All right, closingtimepodcast.com. We thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Again, make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest real estate news and so much more. For Abby Bro, I'm Joe McGuire. We'll talk to you next time.